reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for coming back. If you've listened before, if you're new, I hope you will uh, come away feeling like you had a new perspective on things. Uh, This podcast was founded on uh, a mission of reform against political, against radical Islam, if you will. And, but also I think that that work, as it's founded in our organization, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, has also carried into so many of the other aspects of the front line of humanity, be it in America or abroad, globally. And through that work, I like to bring you a little reflection every week here in our 30 to 40 minutes together at this podcast and if you like it please share it with your friends and follow us on twitter at reform this radio and also on my personal twitter account at dr zudi jasser d-r-z-u-h-d-i-j-a-s-s-e-r a lot to talk about this week with the commemoration of 9-11's 19th anniversary with another peace deal with between israel and this time bahrain i want to talk to you about boundaries Boundaries in that there is a lot of talk about mixing politics and sports, and uh, recent studies showed the the reduction in American interest in professional sports, not because of COVID nineteen, but because of the imposition of politics and some extreme politics into sports. Is that fair? Is it not? Let's talk about boundaries, and I think. Uh, I have a history of boundaries, talking about that in reform, in Islam, and the separation of politics and religion, and how key that is, and I think I can shed a little light on why this is important. And last, a little bit of a window into the woke culture, the cancel culture, and how it's hit medicine, too. The ER docs canceled Deepak Chopra this week. Yeah, they did. And we'll talk about that briefly. All right. So maybe a few other things too. But first, I want to talk to you about the main the main thing on my mind this week, which is boundaries. And I saw a back and forth between one of the commentators on Fox, Guy Benson, who's pretty centrist in his thinking, conservative uh, writer who... Uh, is doesn't hold punches when it comes to criticizing conservatives, criticizing the right, Republican Party. Uh, but uh, I had a little back and forth this week with Mark Cuban, the billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks and known now with fame on Shark Tank. And they went back and forth about a poll that Federalists uh, Ben Dominich Dominic uh, reported on and said that imagine for a moment that you are the head of a company that saw its primary products popularity sink among Republicans and independents by 46 and 36 points respectively in the space of a year. I don't care what that product is. It could be a bar of soap. As a capitalist, you'd have some questions. You'd be open to ideas about what you did wrong, how you can improve your, your sales. You'd be open to ideas. 
You'd consider all the possibilities. You certainly wouldn't reject it as out of touch or imply that it's racist to suggest your affiliation with a radical race-focused agenda was the issue involved. But then you wouldn't be the billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban, famous for Shark Tank, owning the Dallas Mavericks, and a dude who's well-known to America. So what's Ben talking about here? He got into a lengthy argument with Guy Benson, and he said, Mark initially said, you know, and he took one of the tweets in which Guy talked about these numbers. And Cuban said, do I agree with them? No. And he's talking about Black Lives Matter and, and some of the folks that deprecate the flag and kneeling, et cetera, all these issues that are sort of hitting a, a, a central focus. Do I have a problem with them? No, he said. We allow and learn from nonviolent dissent in this country, Cuban said. Societal change and disruption are never easy and often make people uncomfortable. No change agent gets it all correct. Kaepernick has had a positive impact. And then Benson said, well, I disagree strongly with them, and I do have a problem with calling police pigs in the country racist. I also believe that he has a right to say whatever he wants. I have learned from some of the BLM advocates, while also not being terribly interested in learning from Kaepernick. And it goes on, and Cuban says, well, what did Kaepernick do that's so offensive? And Benson lists some of the extreme commentary that Kaepernick has had, in addition to supporting fascists in Venezuela, Cuba, and elsewhere. So, what is the point here? The point is not only a bottom line. Why does it affect the bottom line? Why... Why are people beginning to run away from sports? Is it the rights intolerance of political beliefs? Uh, um, and uh, what if the shoe was on the other foot? What if you went to... Uh, um, I remember initially in the Trump presidency, uh, uh, Vice President Pence went to uh, see Hamilton, and he was accosted by folks who booed him in the hall as he had gone to see the play with his wife. And the examples are just too numerous to count of times in which entertainment, sports, and others sort of cross that rubric. The Academy Awards, the Golden Globes, and others in which sometimes they've been highlighted by on and on speeches exploiting their platforms to dish out a political agenda. I remember the first one, I think the second concert I went to as a teen was a U2 concert. And I was a young Republican and active and conservative movement back from then. And I remember thinking, God, this is Bono. I'm going to see U2. And it was great in Milwaukee. And the first 15 minutes of his set was a political speech. I can't remember what it was about, whether it was climate change or whatever the topic was in the 80s. But all I can tell you is I was peed off. And I was a teenager. I'm like, what is going on here? This is not what I came. I came to listen to the music that I had in my Walkman every day listening to, and I don't remember it being that political music. And yet I was a captive audience at the Bono concert with you too. So this is an issue that's been going on for a long time is sort of the exploitation, the hijacking of what is non-political platforms for a political agenda. 
And as Cuban says, do we need to tolerate some of that on certain things that reach a boiling point in which our society needs to convulse through that change, and that change will then boil over into everything else? I don't think, I don't think that's a fair assessment. Let's step back to what I've been trying to do in my own faith and in Islam. The pathology that causes the devastation upon Muslim-majority countries is theocracy. Our founding fathers in America fought against theocracy. They fought for a constitution and a bill of rights that has an establishment clause that prevents the church, Christianity, from establishing a church through our government. It doesn't separate your your ethics and your morality and your integrity and your beliefs from your political activity. It just separates the organized religious establishment from indoctrinating its laws through the government and establishing its hierarchy through the government. That's what the West or America separation of church and state is all about. In political Islam, in our battle, I've ideologically been fighting for not only the separation of mosque and state, but the belief, the ideology that, you know what? Yes, God can be the center of your life, but it does not need to be in government as Islam being the center of government. It does not need to be an Islamic state by identity, but rather a free state under God is fine. It's very Islamic. It's actually preferable. Our ummah, our faith community, ummah means Faith community also means state in Arabic, and that's one of the reforms I'd like to end is the concept of a religious state. But that religious state then becomes informed by an identity that has a flag that's Islamic, has a legal system that's Islamic, where the Qur'an is the source, not only a source, but the source of, of law. And that is a major problem. So the spirit of that... We at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, we believe that terrorism, which is a tactic in which the ends justifies the means, whether it be through Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Muslim Brotherhood or other radical groups, but that tactic is all about getting the domination, the supremacism of the Islamic State. And that supremacy permeates every institution but starts in the mosque. So when we did reform, the first place in which we battled that was in the mosques. And I remember writing pieces. You can look at them at our website at aifdemocracy.org in which I talked about the fact that why when I go to mosque on our Ramadan prayers, our holiday prayers, our Friday prayers, congregational prayers, is the imam constantly talking about politics. If I wanted politics, I'd stay at home and watch CNN, MSNBC, or whatever other political commentary. I go to congregational prayer to remember God, to be a better person, to, be, to learn about goodness, to learn about Scripture. And yet instead they twist the Scripture into a political statement about conspiracy theories and their anti-Semitism and anti-Westernism and often anti-Americanism. And that conspiracy theory is about the latest recipe as to why they believe we are victims as Muslims. And that constant political narrative is part of what uh, 
drives the Islamists that control most, the vast supermajority of mosques are controlled by that Islamic establishment with influence from Islamic leaders around the world, be it Qatar, Iran, and their Khomeinists, so be it the Shia flavor or the Sunni flavor of political Islam, they've dominated it. So if you look at that institution, there are no boundaries. The mosque has no boundaries when you go there about simply teaching our children, our faith, our families about God, about goodness, about morality. But instead it is a political party. That's what political Islam is. And to reform against political Islam, we need to take back our institutions and rid it of things that are divisive. So there is a way to unite under the principle of honesty, charity, generosity, protection of life, the condemnation of evil, and a way to say, you know what, but leave at the door specific policy prescriptions. Leave at the door prescriptions of whether you're socialist or capitalist, Democrat, Republican, or even Islamist. I'm not seeking to outlaw those who are theocrats. I think we can beat them as we have in every debate that we've ever had. We will defeat them. But inside the mosque, it's about overarching principles that unite us, and we need to find those and discuss them. And I know imams can do that. Imams is the Islamic teacher, leader for prayer. If they want to, they know how to steer away from divisive issues, be it national politics, campaign politics, and to get to overarching principles. So this is the boundaries I'm talking about. So at the core, when I talk about reform and separating religion and politics, maybe many people say, that's impossible. You can't do that in Islam. Islam, by definition, baked into its DNA, baked into its DNA as a mixture of religion and politics because the Prophet Muhammad was not only a messenger of God, he was a head of a military, he was the head of state, and he wore many hats that mixed those things. And my answer to that, as we've talked about on this podcast before, is that, well, it's not what the prophet mixed back then. There were no governments anywhere on the planet in the 7th century that had Western secular liberalism, that had a, a enlightenment, post-enlightenment understanding of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It was all pre-enlightenment, and it was all riddled with autocratic, theocratic interpretations that took a while to modernize. So the question is not what the prophet did in the 7th century, but what would he do if he were alive today? Would he separate those hats? And I truly believe they would. What does this have to do with football and basketball? Well, at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, it is about respect. Boundaries are about respect, equality. If you believe the person you are talking to is equal to you, you don't patronize them and hijack opportunities to talk to them as if you are better than them. So I'm sorry when the left hijacks a basketball game 
to paint on the floor Black Lives Matter. And if we don't, if I don't particularly like that hijacking, it doesn't mean I don't support the three words together, Black Lives Matter. It may mean I don't support what that movement represents and the way it's been acting across the streets of this country. It may mean that I'm insulted that somebody believes I need to be told that. It may mean that I'm already active in Black Lives Matter and I don't want to have it at that game. Who knows what are the different permutations of people in the audience that would be offended? Because they came to watch basketball. They came to watch baseball. They came to watch football. And instead, the national anthem, which was supposed to unite us, last year and the year before, people took a knee. And the Kaepernicks of the world said that, well, the knee was about... The knee was about reminding people that America can be better. So we're going to criticize it and not respect the flag until it gets to be better. Okay, you're free to do that. I'll defend your right to say that. And I've even been against laws of flag burning as tough as it is as a veteran who would die for this country. I don't believe the government should ever get into the business of controlling speech and expression. Now, that boundary, those boundaries, that ethics, let's talk about business. So you have football and entertainment that is a business. So on the one hand, you can say, well, they're making an economic mistake because people are going to, are going to not come and fill the stadiums or watch the TV and they're going to turn the channel. But why is that? Is it because they're just complete blank holes? And they just don't want to listen to the virtuous, virtue signaling of Black Lives Matter? No, I'm, I'm one who believes in the ultimate goodness of mankind and goodness of humanity. And I will tell you, yeah, there might be some that are just sort of fascists or whatever it is, and they don't, they're not going to come because of racial issues or whatever. And if they had their druthers, they'd have a, a uh, whatever the right wing du jour topic of the day is on the field. But 98% of the rest that are leaving and repelled by the political coercion done at entertainment or sports events are simply normal Americans that are honest and, and uh, love their fellow Americans but feel they're being patronized and feel that boundaries have been crossed. So those boundaries, whether you're reforming, you know, at, at the end of the day, Western Enlightenment, liberty was about equality under God for every human being. The respect of their ideas, no matter how offensive, whatever it might be, at the fringes is how we define liberty, not at the center core where there's less disagreement, but at the fringes and what we defend. And if you're going to defend those people at the fringes, then you should create certain venues in which everybody feels well, welcome and they share the values. They share the team spirit of athleticism. They share the team spirit of one town versus another, one state versus another, under the American flag, all united together in sports. At the mosque, we share 
our unity and our understanding that the Quran is the word of God, that we come to pray to God to become better, humble people. Not to have a sermon that divides us by some Democrat and the Republicans then want to leave, or by an, a Muslim Brotherhood political operative and the anti-Islamists want to leave, or by a conservative Salafi fundamentalist and then the liberals want to leave. That's not what the mosque should be. And yet, the Council on American-Islamic Relations and their brotherhood legacy groups all over the country have hijacked our mosques into political operations because they have little respect for the rest of us. They treat us as children, and they think that those boundaries don't matter because we need to, be ha- we need to have it rammed down our throats, as do the rest of Muslims. This is the problem with mixing. So in my practice as a physician, it's not just because it's good economics. I respect my patients and I would die for them. I want to make them better. I want to heal them because the relationship of love, as far as wanting to have that trust and faith in the art of medicine and health and wellness involves a respect. So that patient maybe have some political ideas that I might disagree with, but that's human nature. I don't discuss that with them. Now, sometimes patients know I'm politically active and will open conversations about it, and I'll talk with them as, as, as comfortable as possible. But in the office, I I do not, in the clinic, in the hospital, I do not have political debates. It's an inappropriate environment in which I, as their physician, am ethically bound to treat them in a path for health and wellness. And by the way, this is not an ethical issue related just uniquely to health care. It should be the same with your accountant. It should be the same with your lawyer. It should be the same with your priest and your rabbi and your imam. It's all about boundaries. So all of a sudden now the left wants to destroy those boundaries. There are no more boundaries because the ends justifies the means. We have to repair this rupture. Now you may say, at what point... At what point would you, Zudi, abandon these things if society got a certain amount of sickness and illness? Well, let's look at Syria. Genocide of 600,000 dead. If there's a massive revolution in society, every institution is failing. The government has become anarchy, tyranny, autocracy, certainly not even one hair of an iota close to what we're the culture the, the the luxury and comfort that we're living in here in the west that's a different environment the uyghurs and what they're suffering in china in turkmenistan i think that issue deserves because of the companies that might be involved 
And again, political activity to boycott companies that are involved in those can be done outside of our normal relationships. So again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exploit relationships that I have in order to push that political agenda to awaken companies to what they're doing in China, especially for the Uyghurs. But it does tell you there are things sometimes we do that then starts putting pressure on businesses and other things. But that's different from your personal relationships. And when there's an audience, when there's an audience to a program, to a sport, you have a relationship with that audience. And they come to you for whatever it is you are branding yourself as. And if that brand, if that brand is about politi- political reform or uh, race equality and relations, then that's fine. That's what they're there for. They know what they're coming to get. But if you bait and switch them, if they're coming for entertainment and then you switch it and break that boundary and exploit it and, and, and force a lecture down their throat, eventually they won't come back. And they'll, they, they will cite that as dishonesty on your part. So I think the ethics, be it about the doctor-patient, I don't put political material in my waiting room. I think it, it's uh, a unethical thing now. Some people go the extreme and say, well, then physicians and others should not be political. Even if they have personal political beliefs, they should withhold them or else it'll hurt their business. I I can't disagree with you more. The Susan Sarandons of the world and others in, in entertainment who are very active on the far left. And yes, some of their movies also end up giving us lectures that I'd I don't particularly care for. But typically what they do outside of the silver screen is up to them. It's their free speech, and I would not hold them to that because that's their ability, that's their freedom to do that. Now, if they start behaving in ways that ostracizes conservatives out of Hollywood, which is standard operating procedure if you talk to the John Voights of the world that's corrupt that's unethical that's a mixture of the ethics of if there is any ethics in Hollywood the ethics of of interpersonal business relations and politics ideologies so think about it it's all about boundaries we need to have boundaries And currently this woke culture has crossed those boundaries. Take a look at Ayan Hirsi Ali's piece in the Wall Street Journal this week that also talks about (laughs) wokeism. Wokeism. She coined a new term, which I think is pretty brilliant, about the fact that this woke culture, as much as there's differences and it's not as much of a global threat as political Islam and radical Islamism, there's a lot of commonalities about suppressing free speech, about blasphemy laws, about cancel culture and other things so take a look at that it's a whole topic for another podcast but i think it's it's brilliant this week we commemorated 9-11 the 19th anniversary of 9-11 every year i try to talk a little bit about uh, one of the anniversary podcasts about well have we learned what has changed where are we at i think this year it was important to note Simply the, the, 
how genuine the reflections were about that. Nineteen years to the day that our nation was attacked by radical Islamists, they sought to destroy our way of life. And every year, every day we pray that we honor the memory of all those who perished on 9-11 and in the wars against our enemies that evolved from that in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere so that we can stay free, so that we can be protected from the threat of radical Islamist groups, be it the Taliban, be it Hezbollah, be it Iraqi terror groups that were Shia or Sunni or ISIS that evolved out of that in northern Iraq and in Syria. And may we stay free, unwavering, and American, whatever the threat. And whatever the threat in that, and after 9-11, now we had a threat, a threat this year from a virus. How did we react? After 9-11, we talked about the need to confront ideologies and the method in which we react and what we will sacrifice and what we won't I think defines our nation. Fascinating the uh, sort of takedown happened on Twitter where Paul Krugman, one of the left's sweethearts, a writer for the New York Times who's nauseatingly far left, yet he wrote a tweet that was actually pretty surprising. He said, So it's 9-11. Hard to remember now how large the terrorist attack loomed in our national psyche. After all, in death toll, COVID-19 is already the equivalent of 6911s. But a few thoughts and recollections. By the way, let's bookmark that thought for a second because John Harwood, CNN reporter, made the same sort of inane comment. But the next part of his tweet, he said, Overall, Americans took 9-11 pretty calmly. Notably, there wasn't a mass outbreak of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence, which could all too easily have happened. And while George W. Bush was a terrible president, to his credit, he tried to calm prejudice, not feed it. Daily behavior wasn't affected significantly, on and on, he says. Oh my gosh, that second subtweet in which he said, there wasn't a mass outbreak of anti-Muslim sentiment. 40,000 retweets of his subtweet. And Huffington Post featured on the front page a scathing rebuke in which Muslims then and others went on in a litany of criticism of Mr. Krugman about how insensitive he was because of the hate and the spitting against Muslims, against those who wore hijab. Uh, there were, uh, all of a sudden, if you look at the tweets, it appears that multiple mosques were burned down. Yes, there were some attacks on mosques. Yes, there were some scattered things that happened, but there were also Islamist groups that exaggerated it, that made a cottage industry out of making Muslims into victims and used that concept to radicalize the American Muslim community against America. And again, it's not just radicalizing the entire community, but if you look at the radicalization processes of Nidal Hassan, of the Boston bombers, etc., the, the initial pathway of separatism was about the fact that this country hated them, that, that they were uh, on and on, that they were somehow initially the victims that then became radicalized, which is absurd. That's what the Islamists have been ramming down the throat of 
American Muslims through state-sponsored media from Qatar, Iran, and elsewhere for decades. And Al-Qaeda and ISIS simply continued that mantra in order to recruit future terrorists. Now, the vast majority of American Muslims are patriots. They love this country, but they've been too silent. They haven't pushed back against that. And, oh my gosh, Paul Krugman committed an act of blasphemy when it comes to the West's, the liberal, the left synergy between them and Islamists, the theocrats. God forbid that a far-left columnist apologist who was at home with the Obama administration God forbid that he commit an act of blasphemy in which he say that Americans were pretty tolerant after 9-11 they can't stand for that and sure enough it was re-solidified this week that the, the, the terror that followed from the American population subsequently Huffington Post and others made sure that Paul Krugman took a knee because he had the temerity to say that Americans did not act out against the Muslim population. I'm sorry, I'm still of the belief that generally speaking, the vast majority of Americans did not react hostily. And even in fact, in the context of sending thousands, they sent hundreds of thousands, but thousands of their sons and daughters did not come back to wars because of radical Islam. My book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, talks about this antagonism that could have evolved, but simply most Americans believed it was part of their duty to help, whether it was to liberate Iraq, to liberate Afghanistan. As failed as, failed as those endeavors were, I do believe it was well-intended. As a naval officer, I know that to be true. I don't care what the lefts, what the... Islamists believe. And I have to tell you, let me just quickly say, as far as our military is concerned, the left's attempt this week to, uh, as uh, the, who, Jeffrey Goldberg, by the way, whatever respect I had for him, I no longer have. Taking anonymous sources and what they said and, and then using that, those words, as then the foundation for a story that then makes headlines of the president's opinion about veterans and, and, our soldiers in World War One, World War Two, and his visit to a cemetery. Even John Bolton, who's obviously no friend of the president after having served him as a National Security Council advisor, National Security Advisor, and his tell-all book said that that story was complete fabrication. He never heard of it. They didn't go because of weather. And those comments, he said if he had made them, he would have had a chapter on it. Now, the president's choice words about Senator McCain, a war hero and a veteran, and sometimes otherwise, at times, yeah, they're not as sympathetic as our commander-in-chief should be, but that does not make him anti-military. If you talk to our military officers, they would say, compared to the gutting of the military, compared to how inappropriately our military was supported in their mission in Syria and Iraq as we were left with less and less troops as we withdrew from Iraq and then saw it taken over by Iran, 
on and on that that left more disrespect for the military than anything that a few words from President Trump could do. The same President Trump that then rebuilt our military and allowed strength to return as the primary as the primary articulation of what he felt about our military. So, and and not to mention the left for decades since the 60s has led the country in deprecating and and uh, criticizing and demonizing our military. So now all of a sudden they want to use it simply as a political ploy in trying to manipulate manipulate any voters that might feel that somehow Senator Biden, Vice President Biden, who voted for so many of this gutting of the military in the past, somehow he's going to be more pro-military, which I disagree. But that's neither here nor there. I think that ultimately there is a script that the left lives by, and when any individual doesn't toe that line, especially when it gets to sort of the victimization of minorities. They're going to push back because that mantra is something that the Islamists hold down to in order to hold on to in order to prevent criticism. And sure enough, go to the website of the Council on American Islamic Relations, the Muslim Student Association, the Islamic Society of North America, the alphabet soup of Islamic organizations and see what they did to commemorate 9-11 this week. So yes, they will go out of their way to say they were the victims post-9-11 and not let anybody say that, well, comparatively, it wasn't that bad of a response that, that the American population could have been much worse in their visceral response, and they were not. I mean, to Krugman's point, even programs like 24, remember that was a Fox number one program with Kiefer Sutherland? Even that program had an apology commercial for weeks because they had the temerity to have a character that was Muslim. And my response was, why don't we as Muslims set up a, a, an American Muslim CTU, counterterrorism unit, that was part of the central narrative of 24? That should be the response, not to whine and bellyache about a program on Fox. But this is the narrative, right? And post 9-11, where were the commemorations? Yes, there were some groups that commemorated it, but I still think that the best way to melt away bigotry that might exist against Muslims, whatever to whatever extent it might exist, is for Americans to see us lead the battle to root out the ideologies that radicalize our communities. For them to see us lead that battle. Every 9-11, we're reminded of this. And, you know, I told you to bookmark that because not only did Krugman then say that we've lost so many more from COVID-19, so did John Harwood. John Harwood said, he said the pandemic is now every week taking twice as many American lives as were lost on 9-11. I mean, the levels of insanity and idiocy 
or propaganda in that tweet is just is, is, is beyond, is incredulous. Why? Because, first of all, that was the tip of the iceberg. Al-Qaeda had declared war on us back during the Clinton administration in 98, and that war then came to fruition for Al-Qaeda with its attacks on our Pentagon, the failed one in Flight 93 that was attacking the Capitol of the White House, and also on New York City and the World Trade Center. But then we then went to root out countries that were harboring terrorists, the Taliban in Afghanistan, Iraq and Saddam Hussein and, and, and on and on. So to say that somehow, and this, this battle hasn't ended, the radicalization, the Islamist groups, the jihadists are still brewing in the cauldron of radical Islam that is Iran, that is Turkey, that is Syria, that is Saudi Arabia, that is Iraq, that is Afghanistan, that is Pakistan. These cauldrons are not decreasing, they're increasing. So to compare it to COVID-19 is not only insanity. We're going to have a vaccine within a few weeks, if not months at the latest. And all of a sudden that vaccine will, now there may be other viruses, there may be mutations, every year we'll have probably new vaccines. Yes, our way of life has changed. But every year also, we. what about the numbers for influenza? Compare that to radical Islam and the wars that we had to fight. Why not compare that, 50,000 a year to the flu, to cancer, to other things that are normal parts of yearly morbidity and mortality of life because of illness, be it infectious disease or otherwise. But no, there's this moral equivalency that's constantly launched by the left without any sense of balance, of truth to the reality that one is an ideology that truly is seeking to destroy us in the West. And the other is a virus that evolved this time and multiple times often from China, which is another problem, but we can talk about that. But bottom line is it's a apolitical, non-ideological virus. But I, most of the devastation was not only the lives lost, but the, the morbidity related to self-inflicted wounds that I talked to you about last week and the weeks before on this program. Next week, I want to talk to you about more peace. We now have a peace deal between Bahrain and Israel with the second country. Ambassador Dermer said, Israel waited 26 years to make peace with a third Arab country and now only 29 days to make peace with a fourth. Thanks to the leaders of the Emirates and Bahrain for this historic breakthrough and to the President of the United States for confronting and helping transform our region for the better. And the response from the Palestinian leadership, Saeb Arakat, perennially a Palestinian radical, tweeted in Arabic to those who try to divert the compass from the mistake of the UAE in Bahrain by blaming the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian people, I tell you, do not be part of the Arab Zionists, as this phenomena will be a stigma for everyone who 
backstabs the Palestinian people with poison daggers made by the Trump administration. Look at this. Look at this complete nonsense. Forever the Palestinian leadership are trying to somehow dismiss their enemies as Zionists. Somehow if that's supposed to be a criticism. And yet... It proves that they're relics of the past. It proves that they've failed and they've lost. Because slowly, Arabic countries, especially the Emirates and Bahrain and probably others to come soon, are beginning to realize that there needs to be a Palestinian spring against Hamas before they get taken seriously. And in the meantime, the Arab leadership is not going to wait for that to happen. And they're going to look out for their own interests and begin to reform some of the ideas. And this is why I think it's real. I talked to you last time about the reality of the theology coming out of the mosques and emirates, and hopefully now in the Bahrain, about the need to recognize Israel, about the need for us to be equal with the Jews and their community, and not to interpret it in an anti-Semitic, bigoted way, and to reinterpret scripture that demonizes Jews in any way. And that needs to happen. More to come on this next week. Always a lot to talk to you. Thank you for joining me this week. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.